0: You ready to get into Mark? All right, chapter 2, getting into this uh, narrative again. We are in a section of Scripture that some writers have called uh, the stories of conflict. In fact, one guy actually said uh, he called it five collisions with Jesus. Uh, Starting in chapter 2 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, there are five particular narratives that tell the story of some event, something Jesus said or something Jesus did, that creates all sorts of tension with the religious establishment at the time. We saw it <clears throat> two weeks ago when we looked at verses 1 through 12 in chapter 2 where Jesus heals the paralytic. Great story. Stories story's kind of burned in our minds, and that is just friends, four friends, tear a hole in the roof and lower down a paralyzed man in front of Jesus. It's what Jesus said that was odd. He says, I see your faith, your sins are forgiven, which created all sorts of hell for these Pharisees. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And there was a serious problem with what Jesus said because what Jesus was saying in essence was, I'm God, so I have the power to do that. No one missed the message, okay? First conflict. Second conflict we saw last week was when um, we saw at a dinner party, Jesus is hanging out with the notoriously evil people. He calls Matthew and Matthew calls his friends, other tax gatherers and other sinners, the only people he knew, the only people that hang out with him. And they're at a dinner party and the text tells us that many followed Jesus, okay? The response of the Pharisees, the religious establishment at the time, w- was to say, why does he do that? Because no self-respecting Jew, let alone a rabbi of which you claim to be, would hang out with evil people. That's not what we do. We kind of avoid and shun those folks. And Jesus' response was pretty profound where he says, it's not the well who need a doctor. But I've come to the sick." We, we put it in, in this kind of phrase, Jesus didn't come for the good. So their conflict in this situation was over what Jesus did, and what he did was he accepted sinners. And when he said, I didn't come for the righteous, the Pharisees took it personal. That's who we are. We are man-made versions of getting ourselves to God, and you're telling us that you who claim to speak for God don't don't have anything to do with us, and so there was a a very tense moment there for them. Third conflict that we are into today is, is not over what Jesus said or what Jesus did, but over what Jesus didn't do. And what Jesus didn't do was honor the traditions and rituals of the Pharisees, okay? So he's just kind of negated everything that they're all, all about <clears throat> in one little experience. So let me make it relatable before we get into the text. <clears throat> that was, I asked Jeremy before the 8 o'clock service, how would I make this, this particular, I think, thing that's in the human heart, um, like close to your heart? I'm not certain I know how to do that in, in a... In a, in a story or illustration, but let me try to take you through my story, all right? And I'll start with this, like, statement over everyone. I think everyone in here, every human heart, has at least a corner of it that has a traditional heart, meaning there is something, there's something to do or something not to do that, that just would be really, really important to you. In fact, if you cross the line, it would really bother you or upset you For instance, if you grew up um, in church your whole life, and you were in a church that was pretty strong on things to do, like it was a legalistic environment, the first time you hear the message of grace alone, it kind of makes you uncomfortable. In fact, if someone preaches grace the way the Bible preaches grace, it leaves everyone feeling like, okay, that's too far, because people are going to go crazy now. Really? There's no work, no effort? To have this relationship restored between God and man, it's all by grace, I don't buy that. There's gotta be something else. And so even that illustration of maybe an environment you grew up in, the message of the Bible will bother the traditional heart. When I was a kid, like really small kid, the only Bible that we had was the King James Version. It's the only one. I had 10 of them, right, from Bible memory. They were all over the place. But in like 63, 64, this new strange version came out called the New American Standard. And I heard my dad talk about these Bible wars. Some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about. People had a serious problem with somebody else, some other translation. Now, you just assume it's okay now. Most of us us look at the NAS and go, that's so old. That's so yesterday. And you got the ESV, you got the NIV, whatever. We've moved on from that. But it was a big, big deal then. And so there were traditions that held on to those things and said, the only right way is this way. Um... When I was a kid, the only thing we sang out of was, was hymnals. Do I need to find what a hymnal is? It's a book. A book that has pages with music on it. And there were certain hymns that made it, and only certain classic hymns that you sang until, like, when I was in high school, suddenly this guy named Bill Gaither shows up, and he, he makes a cut. I have no idea why. He's in there now. But choruses bothered the church. Like, we don't sing choruses. We sing hymns. God sings hymns. So we need to sing hymns. And... and uh, there was about a bunch of bothered people. I don't know how many years ago, but someone decided to say, let's invent, a, a, let's bring in modern instruments, drums, guitars, into a worship service. And that bothered a bunch of people. And I'm not saying that if it bothered you, that somehow you put it in, a, that's a way to know God category. But nevertheless, there's a traditional component to every heart. Whatever the, whatever the particular is, it might be um, very diverse, but th- it's in there. And... Uh, and so possibly the, the most difficult person to deal with is the religious traditionalist. And this person suggests that the things he cares about or doesn't care for are absolutely critical to knowing God. I mean, if you're going to walk with God, if you're going to call yourself one of his, then these have to be a part of the story. Maybe those other things, you never put it in that category, they just bothered you, fine, whatever. But these things... The religious traditionalist, he will take these things and say they're essential parts of being in a right relationship with God. Those people are the kind of people Jesus is dealing with here. And that's exactly the the event that we're going to uncover in this text this morning. Jesus is facing a bunch of criticism from people who know the rules, who know the traditions, who know the rituals, but don't know God and they have a serious problem with what Jesus doesn't do. And so we want to look at it. In fact, before I do, before we read this, Paul had it in his day too. So when he's encouraging the young pastor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he talked about these people and he described them in this way. I think it fits perfectly what Jesus is dealing with. He says, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Right? Has anybody ever met anybody who on the outside looks like they've got things sorted out? But there's no Jesus in it. There's no power in it. There's no submission in it. There's no love in it. There's no grace in it. It's just rules. And they have the appearance of having things right, but denying the power of of the gospel. And that's Paul's statement to Timothy, and that describes perfectly these these men that that, uh, Jesus exchanges with here in chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Let's read it together and let's see what God has to say. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will not fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray together. God, every, every week we come to your word and uh, we confess, first of all, our limitations. One is uh, we came, many of us, with distracted minds. We're nowhere near ready to hear from you. So I pray that your spirit would stop us in our tracks and woo our attention. And then, God, there's this limitation. We lack complete understanding, and so we are dependent on the spirit to teach us. So that's what we're praying for today, that you make a point. You make a point to us, about us, and for us. So I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. First of all, let's look at what's going on here. Verse 18 says that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, fasting. Um, Some of you fast, um, but let's just define it. Fasting is is abstaining from food for a time, self-denial, in order to give your attention to God, for your ability to discern the will of God or or to sense his presence in your life, to worship, to pray, um, to listen to God. And and so fasting isn't bad, um, and it's it's practiced, right? The tension comes in the second half of verse 18. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Here's the tension. Everybody's doing this. You and your guys aren't. What's the problem? And we're going to unpack some of the culture in this, but here's here's what's interesting in in this tension. We have John the Baptist's disciples. We have the Pharisees' disciples, those who follow the religious leaders. And you have to just assume here by the people asking the question, people doesn't say they're disciples of the Pharisees or of John. They're just some people, according to to this text in in verse 18, some people were asking the question, which just imposes on this background that almost everybody just assumed this is the way you religiously followed God. It was just assumed in the culture. That's, That's the impression it made. The fact that average people are asking this question said, okay, we have these illustrations of fasting, We assume that's the right way to know God and be with God, so you claim to speak for him. Why aren't you involved in this process? It was such a a normal, accepted practice. Now, if you're smart and you're reading between the lines, this is not just a question. They're not looking for an answer. They're making a judgment, aren't they? They're they're making a judgment statement about the lack of participation in, in fasting here. In other words, Jesus, you and your disciples are doing something wrong. In fact, that's the accusation If, we, as we kind of plow our way through Mark, we're going to see many, many times in this, in this text, but the accusation that Jesus is always ignoring the law of God. He's making it up. He's doing what he wants to do, and it's totally different than what we're a part of. Well, of course, that's foolishness. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly. And as far as fasting goes, the law of God only required one day of fasting and the day of atonement. The Day of Atonement was this super intense moment for God to make his point about sin and his provision. Now, it was cloudy at best in pictures, of, of which I think you need the Holy Spirit to see it, but we can look at it through a gospel lens. But what they were required to do was to get a goat, a sacrifice, to kill a goat and shed its blood. Now, we get the cross from that, right? We get Jesus from that, but they were, that picture was painted. Your sin cost someone's death. This, this animal was killed. Then they took another goat, and they would put their hands on the head of this goat at the the, um, Day of Atonement and ceremoniously would transfer the sins of the people to the goat. And then they would usher the goat away from the camp and just say, get lost. And the goat was gone, signifying how far God has removed our sins from us. Sacrifice your sins, sins gone, separated from you. Okay that's the picture of the day of atonement and in this text in Leviticus chapter 16 it really it really doesn't say anything about fasting it just says that you shall afflict yourselves which i guess turned into fast put some kind of pain on your life in that day to kind of get the point of this day and so they fasted this day wasn't the day of atonement in fact um Jesus wasn't breaking the law he was breaking these traditions. And the Pharisees had a way of making traditions. Uh, they lived by law and legalism. You knew that, right? They, they would just invent ways. In fact, they had a law for law. If some is good, more is better. So let's just make, make more, more things to do, more effort for us. And so they invented things. And one of the things they invented was fasting every Tuesday and every Thursday during the daytime, like a 12-hour shift every week. Don't eat. Why? because God likes you better. You're more spiritual. You're more religious. And that was on the people. And that's what Jesus and his disciples were not doing, okay? They were doing their, um, their thing. And part of this whole fasting ritual that was going on, this man-made version of fasting, was to make sure that they got credit for it. They made it visible, In fact, they were hoping to get blessings from God, impress God, and impress others. And so they believed that if they did these things, God would be obligated to do things for them, and and people would notice how righteous they were, and so they made it visible. They would whiten their faces. They would take ashes from a fire and put it on their head. They would wear um, wrinkled clothing, okay? They wouldn't take a bath. Sounds like my home. They wouldn't take a bath, and they would... uh, They walk around sad all the time. I mean, they would actually tell themselves, don't smile. Make certain everyone gets that you're fasting. A total human display to try to impress others and obligate God. That's the situation that we're in here. So let this scene sink into your hearts. The leader said, this is the way to do it. The followers said, okay, we will. And this is what it means to be spiritual. And they elevated tradition to the position of law, and Jesus isn't having any of it. He's not playing along. He's not participating. He's not keeping the rules, and so they judge him and and judge his followers. Now look at how Jesus responds in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I I love this response from Jesus here because he says something so familiar to them that they would all know what he's talking about, which is part of using great illustrations. But he also said something so scandalous that they couldn't miss it. Again, we're talking about conflict here between the Lord of glory and man. And so this, this kind of illustration brought some of that to bear too. Let's deal with the familiar part of this, weddings. Okay. Everyone knows weddings. In fact, I had two of my son's Last two weeks, get engaged. So I'm getting ready for weddings, okay? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Good for them. Good for them. Great girls, great time. But we're going we're gonna to do what we do in weddings, and it'll be the American Gilbert version of weddings. We're going to go where we go. We'll eat what we eat, and it'll be great, okay? And, and what's typical in our culture is that you have the wedding, and you have then a reception. It's typical. However long, however short, however much food, doesn't really matter. But after the day, it's over. You're on a plane, train, or automobile, and you're out of there, right? Couple's gone. They're going to some island somewhere to enjoy each other for a week or two, right? Well, that's not the culture here. Here, they didn't go anywhere. In fact, you get, you get married, and the first thing you do is hold a week-long celebration where you invite all of your friends and all of your family members and the entire community to celebrate your greatest day. And nobody went anywhere. In fact, they would sit there, and sometimes they would even make crowns. They would call them kind of king and queen because they were the king and queen of the, of the, of the moment. And it was this week-long celebration for a very hard-working, very common group of people um, who were experiencing what they considered to be the happiest week of their life, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That's the level of importance that this kind of reception, this week-long reception was. In fact... And the wedding was such a big deal that the rabbis, the religious people, the ones who made the rules, made an exception rule for weddings. And they just simply said, during this wedding feast, you don't have to practice all these rituals. In fact, they would encourage people, the most strict, encourage them to kind of let the rules go for the sake of the bride and the groom. In fact, I I saw one writer that described kind of the sentence they would use to kind of push into the celebration thing. All in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. Here, here's the point I want you to get in this. In this culture at the time, the celebration of the bride and groom was so huge that anything that would get in the way of their happiness, was they were told to put it aside, just go for joy. Just go for happiness. That's why when Jesus says, it would make no sense, right? If, if the bridegroom's with it would make no sense. In fact, you're, you're called not to follow these rules and not to fast dur- during a wedding, okay? So he doesn't call for fasting because it would lessen the joy of the moment. That's what Jesus says. So that's the familiar, the wedding. Everyone would sit there and go, oh, okay, I'm getting it. But what bothered them was that Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom. This is huge, and there's a lot of Old Testament pictures playing in the background here. But in the Old Testament, the Messiah, of whom they were wondering and asking questions about this guy. Is he the one? Is he the promised one? Never in the Old Testament was the Messiah referred to as the bridegroom. The bridegroom is always referred to as God. The father. The father is the husband of his people. There's there's no way these people missed that picture. In fact, they would have known this passage, Isaiah 54... For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a wife. Every person listening to Jesus' words knew, wait a minute, he just called himself God. You get my point? Multiple times in all these narratives of the Gospels, Jesus says things that probably skip right past us, but to them was the conflict you're not suggesting that you're just a nice guy or one of us. You're suggesting you're exclusive. You're the one and only. You a to describe yourself. Isn't that what he did in chapter two when he said about the paralytic? I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. Before you ever healed him. And the, the Pharisees got that point too. Look, nobody can do that but God. Precisely. That's exactly the point. Is exactly the point that Jesus is making here with the bridegroom illustration. He says, I am God. And it makes no sense for us to be solemn or to fast when God is in your presence. It makes no sense when I've come close. The creator of the universe, the savior of men's souls comes close to your needs. It makes no sense to, to walk around mourning. You're supposed to celebrate just like you would a wedding, Right? So, as much as they understood the wedding illustration, as much as they were probably bothered by the bridegroom one, there's no way they saw and understood verse 20. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. There's no way they saw this. First of all, bridegrooms don't leave, guests do. We hope. Right? You leave. Party's over. And Jesus somehow switches it all and says, hey, there's a day when the bridegroom's going to split. In fact, the phrase taken away is the same phrase that he uses about the patch that tears away, that tears away. That's the same word, torn away. That didn't make any sense. No have could have understood. No one could have seen that Jesus is referring to the good news in him. No one could have seen that, that he's a savior come to die, that he would be dragged away and killed on a criminal cross for his people's sins. He's describing right here in that one little sentence, like, it makes no sense to, to mourn now. But one day I will be dragged away. One day I will be gone. and I will suffer. And then it'll make sense. Then, then you should fast. Then you should see your sin. Makes sense to be sad that day, but not when I'm with you. Not now. It's not appropriate. I am here today and you have no idea, no idea the joy of this moment. All of human history has been waiting for this day. Every prophet and his predictions about a savior come is pointing to this day. In fact, take all that away and just simply go to your human heart's desires and wants. All of your desires and hopes are wrapped up in that day that somehow your biggest problem would be solved by God's solution, who is Christ. No one could have seen how great that day was. But it's here now, Jesus says. And they couldn't see it, and that's because they were so wrapped up in their traditions and their law and their legalism and their rituals. They couldn't see it. They had no room for Christ that way. So Jesus tells them two parables, two stories to make his point that what they're doing, how they live, will not work. I I love this because we can get close to, to the gospel story even more. Verse 21 and 22 are the two parables. Here's the first one. It's about a new cloth and an old garment. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. I suppose if if there's a a story to share, an illustration to use, we could probably understand this one, Uh, although it's becoming increasingly rare to patch our clothes, isn't it? Growing up in a family of of eight kids, four boys, two girls, and a basset hound named Sam, my mom had a black singer sewing machine permanently in place. I mean, it had a place in the house. It wasn't in the closet and just in case you had a project. It was there to rescue old clothes of which were hand-me-downs from all my brothers. You're just, you're just always patching stuff. There wasn't money to buy all those things. So we still get the idea of patching it, and we probably get the idea of the illustration. You, you, you can't take a garment that's been washed and washed and washed and shrunk to the ultimate end and put a new piece of cloth on it because it'll tear away and ruin both, right? That's, that's the point that he makes. And the, and the spiritual analogy is that laws and traditions can't be attached to grace. You can't take your way of pleasing God by your man-made efforts and attach it to what Jesus is bringing. They, they don't go together. It can't work. Christianity is about a relationship to God through, through Christ alone. There is nothing added to that. Jesus came to set us free. Anybody want to say amen to that? Amen. Set us free from the bondage of sin. Now, let me just tell you what the bondage of sin may look like. I know we think typically train wreck, and and it's true. He sets us free from that too. You you could be the worst, most vile offender that's ever walked the planet. The the gospel of Christ comes to set you free from that. But there's another vile part that we don't consider vile, and, and, and that is religion and effort that God considers disgusting too. And he came to set us free from that as well. Right? So let me put it this way. Whatever version of life and living that you have, uh, apart from what God provides for your freedom, is the evil Jesus came to free you from. Like, so you could say I'm choosing my behavior. I'm going to go crazy because ultimately I'm trying to find that place called happiness. Or you can choose restriction and legalism and effort and church and whatever and say, because I hope at the end of that God sees me and I get what I want. Everyone's searching for what they want. Here's the point of the gospel. Jesus is the destination. He himself is the point of the story. Anything, anything, good or bad, that's trying to get where you want to go without Jesus is what he came to free you from. you understand? And to these people, they thought my ladder, my man-made effort, is what's going to get me there. And Jesus says, no, no, it won't. Because you're, you're, trying, you're trying to see how we would go together. I don't go together with law. Because I came to give freedom and grace. That's what he says here. The second parable might need a little help. Let's, let's read it. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Let, let me tell you what's going on here. They would um, use goat skins for their wine production. And here's how they do it. I hope it's not too gory. They would cut around the neck and around the hooves and pull the skin off in one piece. They would sew up the feet and use the neck for a spout. Make sense? And because of the freshness of the skin, it had the ability to flex and morph to the expansion of wine. Everyone tracking so far. So that's why the illustration is used. Old skins, in that scenario, would simply rupture. Just, just simply blow, blow up. And, and hopefully that makes sense. What Jesus is saying here is that law, um, Jewish ritual... All those traditions are the old wineskin with all of the absolutes that couldn't contain the ministry and the message that Jesus was bringing. It can't contain me. It has no space for me. He didn't come to give his spirit to people who are trying to please him. Like people who are saying, listen, let let me work really hard, and then you give me the spirit. See, some people are confused that way, that somehow our religion, our church attendance, whatever, is what God then engages with. And Jesus says, it doesn't come that way. If you've been around long enough, you understand what the scripture says about our spiritual condition apart from Jesus. And terms that it uses are great pictures of old wineskins. The Bible says our hearts are hard and dead. Like an old wineskin is hard and dead. And it's inflexible. The gospel softens us and makes us alive to receive the spirit of God and then to go on the journey God wants to take us. And this is really, really huge. I want you to get this. What the Spirit of God wants to do in the hearts of every believer can't be contained in religion. It can't be contained in these things that you feel better about yourself in. It just can't happen. God is much bigger, much greater than you could possibly fathom. In fact, if we just stick to the Gospels and what they say about what Jesus offers, he talks about abundant life, a life that you have a peace that is beyond comprehension you have a joy that's unexplainable and full of glory. You have examples of God taking average, ordinary, loser people like me and you and does transforming work in their lives so that they become apostles and they go and plant churches and suddenly the world is turned upside down because the spirit of God does so much more than you could possibly fathom when he gets a hold of our heart with grace. That's what, that's what the scriptures are saying. That's what Jesus' illustration means. You're hard and closed and rigid way in which you want to respond to him has no room for what he offers. It it can't go there. So here's what happens to those who choose to kind of go at the way the Pharisees are doing it. Ultimately, we know from the scriptures it leads to death, and I would suggest to you something even as bad. It's a death-life kind of existence. Nobody enjoys this stuff. You can be a hardworking moralist. You can be a person that compared to everybody in this room has sorted out some kind of behavior and we could be impressed, but I know this about the human heart. It will never, ever ultimately lead to peace because it leaves you wanting. There's way more hardworking, disciplined people than any of us who've made their life miserable in order to think, I can make this work. I can make God happy. And they're not. it's kind of like a living death to be in that position, trying to make yourself good enough. It's like the proverbial uphill treadmill. You're just never going to get it to shut off. It's not going to stop. And you won't enjoy it. So I do this on Thursdays, okay? And I I really apologize (laughs) because you have to endure what I think the Holy Spirit is telling me. Um, And and I hope it fits. I, I looked at this passage and and. Three things jumped out at me. Th- three things that at least were conviction to me. So this is the application for the day. So if we back up and take a run back through this story, um, this is what I see. And, and I'm going to form it in a question, the first one. Are you known for joy? What do you think? Like if I brought in your best friends or your family and said, tell me, tell me about Bob. Tell me about Alice. What are they like? Oh, man. They're so happy it makes me sick. Or would they say, no, they're kind of they're survivors, kind of grumpy. And they're really edgy and things don't go well and they're not very happy. Um, what would they say? Because I think Paul commands in Philippians 4 that the attitude and the demeanor of joy, um, he commands it. But it's the natural, right, true demeanor of every Christian. Joy is. That's what our response should be. It's the illustration of Jesus saying about his presence. There's no time for this sadness stuff. I'm here. There's no time for gloom and doom. The Savior has arrived. God has come close to his people. What are you doing fasting? What are you doing being sad? Paul commands it. In fact, this is how he says it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And, by the way, just in case you didn't hear it, again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, always. It's not a circumstantial joy. It comes through the lens of the gospel. Jesus loves you. So perfectly and so completely, nothing will change, nothing will diminish the, the eternal, all supernatural, powerful expression of love God could have for you. It's bigger than I can describe. That's why joy comes out of sinners, because God cares, God loves, God forgives. Let let me make a potentially painful observation, okay? And uh, maybe this is uh, true of you. Some of you aren't known for joy. Like if if we did do the investigation, of which we won't, um, you're not known for joy. You look at your circumstances, and they, they stink, and so you just respond with the kind of depressed gloom and doom that it's not going like you, you want. Well, Jesus has an answer to that. You ready? You ready? And I'm not trying to oversimplify our response, but Jesus has an answer for circumstances that don't go like you want them to go. He is sovereign, and he loves you. It, it really isn't that complicated. If God is in His wisdom, gives you precisely what you need for life and godliness, and He loves you with an unbelievable amount of love, then when circumstances aren't what you want, you should look at yourself and say, Well, here's the problem it's me. I don't see. I can't perceive. I don't know what He's doing. But at least you can tell yourself when, when joy is being ripped out of your heart because of circumstances. Okay, wait, wait. He's sovereign, He knows. He's in control, and he loves me, okay? Some of us um, aren't full of joy because we wallow in sin and failure. And so let me just make sure you don't misunderstand me. I believe that there's a response to sin. Grieving sin is, is a normal reaction when you love God and his righteousness. Seeing your sin that way for a season is part of what it is to repent, I think, according to uh, the scriptures. But... Some of us wallow in it. Some of us wallow in our sin and failure, and Jesus has an answer for that. He forgives you completely, no strings attached. And I mean that. I mean, however scandalous that is to you, I'll let it sink in. We, we learned this in Romans, didn't we? There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, no separation for us, nothing. He will not remember our sins anymore. Just learn the Bible when your sin tries to say something greater than what God has provided, tell yourself the gospel. In spite of how it feels, don't wallow, wallow. live in your failure, live in God's provision. Here's what I think I see, and I, this sounds like an old man, so I apologize, but in, in my least interpretation of the world that we live in, and I say this with a little bit of fear, people are more obsessed with the problem than God's solution. Like they want to get to groups and talk about how we share the same evil practice together. And that way I feel a little bit more comfortable because I'm not the only loser in the house. Okay? Well, I got it. I got it. Maybe there's some place for some of this. Somewhere. Somewhere we got to get past all of that and get to the place of God is great. And God has done wonderful things for me. I don't have to be identified by my sin and my struggle and my hurt. Right? I need to rejoice, according to Paul's command, in the super abounding, wonderful provision of God's forgiveness for me, okay? Some of us struggle with this too. We're hurt by others and we can't get over it. And again, I I say this with with all the respect I can. Um, I know sinners hurt sinners. I know that happens and I'm not downplaying how your version of hurt, where it happened in your life, or your childhood, or whatever. But Jesus has an answer for that, not to be oversimplistic, He calls us to forgive as we've been forgiven. He said, I didn't. And I know you want justice, and he says he's the judge, and he'll sort all things out. He simply says, if you see yourself as the sinner that you are, as we all are, in spite of what anybody's done to us, I'm to love my enemies. I'm to forgive those who hurt me and persecute me, right? Again, with sensitivity towards those situations, I just think Jesus has an answer. If you're sitting here and you are honest and you're one of those people who doesn't live in joy, then I have possibly two answers for you. There's one potential possibility you might not be a believer you know about these things, but you've never embraced these things. They're not yours by faith, and so you're just striving. It is the treadmill. You're trying really hard. You've just added religion called Christianity to your world, and it not sorted it out either. And maybe some of you, but the, probably the bulk of us, when we fail to live in the joy that the gospel has provided, it's that we're working for it other ways. Above and beyond what, what Jesus offers, other ways that don't work. Jesus simply says in this illustration, I am the bridegroom, I am God. When I am with you, celebrate. Joy, set aside all that stuff and come after me. So that's, that's my first application. I've got one minute to make two more. This next one is a math equation, okay? If you, if you are an engineer, you will learn to love this. Addition equals destruction. Get it? Get the picture of the new cloth on an old garment. They don't go together. And if you try to add anything to Jesus alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, you lose it all. Destruction, eternal damnation is what the scriptures say is at stake here. You can think that you, you have good intentions. But if you don't jettison everything but Christ alone, you lose it all. You can't add law or work to what Christ has done. He's the one who's righteous for you. He's the one who covers you. He's the one who accepts you. Amen? Here's the last one. Another question. Does your Christian life have room for what God wants to do? What do you think? You know the illustration of the wine skins and the new fermenting wine—it expands to contain what this new work is doing. I would just suggest to you that some of us um, have a very rigid box like God, and He has to fit here. He has to do these things, these way, th- this way, and I, I don't have room for Him to do anything else. It's like we say to God, "God, I, I want my salvation. I do. I really want it. Thank you very much, but please do not do anything radical with my life. Don't send me to the mission field, please." Um, uh, God, I want you to be predictable, but just like this new wine illustration, Jesus blows out the edges. He wants to because he has so much to give his people. He has so many more things that you can possibly fathom to provide for his church. God wants to do those things in us. Th- this new life um, is supposed to expand and it's supposed to push out the dead stuff. It's supposed to get rid of the things of the past, the things you live for and the reasons why you lived it. This gospel is supposed to affect us, like go through us and change us to transform us, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, okay, you're here. Um, I read an illustration by um, Dr. Donald Barnhouse, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in the 40s and 50s, I think. He was visiting the battlefields of World War I, and it was spring, and he saw these leaves falling down. In fact, one stuck in his shirt lapel, and he picked it up and just kind of disintegrated, like it was really, really dead. He tried to figure out what's going on. There's no wind. Nothing's blowing. We're not in fall, so leaves shouldn't be falling. What, what's going on? Why are these leaves falling? And it dawned on him. It was spring, and the sap was running. And sap, the life of the tree, was growing up in the, in the, through the branches and pushing out all the dead and old. You get the picture? That is the Spirit of God. That is the spirit of God and God's people. It's kind of like what Thomas Chalmers said in his like little sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. When God gets a hold of us and we love the preeminent, he's going to do some changing. He's going to do some radical things in the hearts of his people. I think people who don't have Christ, who are trying to climb this ladder or walk the treadmill, have no idea how fully Jesus fills us. The Bible says things like our full heart and our emotions and our wills and our, our minds are overflowing. That's what Jesus came to give. And those of us who, who have Christ, according to this, at least it seems to me, have to be prepared to let him spill over the edges. He's gonna do some radical stuff with you. Like, like some of you have to be prepared to uh, let go of securities that aren't the gospel. Because at the end of that discussion is a greater joy. God is for you. He is into your joy. That's why Jesus came. Do you get that? I hope you understand that. So we have to be prepared to have him deal with our systems and our traditions and our rituals and things that are Jesus plus gospels. That's what Jesus promises, and that's what he brings according to the story, amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the gospel, this wonderful good news that can't be plumbed, it can't be exhausted. You have, you have come to give us a joy that according to your word is inexpressible. It's hard to put words to it. God, thank you for this reminder. God, I pray that we'd look in the spiritual mirror of our lives and see the places where we have something as well or other than Jesus alone for our hope Enjoy. We confess it as sin. We call it what you do, and we walk in the freedom that you provide. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.